Good to see y'all. Glad you're here. We're starting off this New Year's with a series called 2020 Vision. And uh, if you missed the first couple weeks, go back and listen to them. We got them on our website, kind of get caught up with where we're headed. And and, uh, what we're doing is, this is our premise, guys. This is what our belief is. And this is my belief for us as a church. That if we start this new year, this new decade, all right, God's moving us into a new future. We know that we're in a period of transition and and there's new direction, but it's going to be connected to where God has brought us from, all right? And and the mission is going to be uh, continuous. It's going to continue on. It might get worked out differently. He might have some different ways in which he wants us to, to work to accomplish the mission, but it's the same mission. It's the same calling. It's the same focus. And so we're just refreshing that. We're revisiting that. And my belief is that if we can enter this new decade, this new year, with our eyes clearly focused, focused in on Jesus, right? Our eyes set on him. He is our leader. He, it is his church. He's the one we're supposed to be following. That if we get our eyes on him, then we're going to be able to see clearly what it is he wants us to do, where it is he has us uh, to go. And so that's really what we're, we're focusing in on. We have a mission statement, a vision statement for this church that has uh, guided us for a long time and it continues, it will continue to guide us forward. And this is what it says. We exist to see people saved, to see saved people grow, and to encourage believers to reach the next person. So as I've been saying, we're a church that believes that we're here to reach the world around us. We're not just here uh, for ourselves. We're not just an inward-focused church, which can happen, uh, where we just get focused in on uh, each other and, and helping each other and, and the relationships we have with each other, which is, is great. There's nothing wrong with that, but that can't be the complete focus for us, or else we develop this us-for-no-more mindset. And, and as an old uh, pastor used to say that I, I grew up under, like we don't want to have that. We want to be open to new people. We want to reach out to the world around us. And so we're here to reach people. Then we're here to see saved people grow. And so we want to provide opportunities to grow. We want to help you grow if you're a follower of Jesus. And so that's why we said, um, you know, some of the things that we're we're planning to do and have done, but we want to continue to focus on that. We don't just exist to reach the world, right? And we don't just exist to grow as believers, but both of those are important. And then we want to help you or encourage you if you're a believer to reach the next person to be involved in living on mission, to be involved in the world around you and to see that God's placed you in the arenas where you live and where you work and where you play. He's put you there so that you can reach the people around you. You have relationships and and God's calling us to use uh, the influence we have, right? To encourage people to know and love God and to begin a relationship. So that's our mission. How are we going to do that? Well, um, <clears throat> there's a number of ways in which we're going to do it, but we want to be guided by the five biblical purposes for the church. Uh, actually, as we look at Scripture, it's been worked out by some smarter people you know, above my pay grade, but they've distilled out that there are five biblical purposes. That if we look at Scripture, we look at the New Testament, we look at Jesus, this is his church, that there are five kind of main themes in which we need to focus on to accomplish the mission he has for us. And we've looked at, over the last couple of weeks, the first two, um, they are worship. So two weeks ago, we focused in on worship. That really worship comes from the great commandment, where Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, this is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he said, the second is like it, uh, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the great commandment, we, we learned that worship 
A heart of worship, a desire to worship God comes from a love for God. And the reason we're commanded to love God is not because God is needy. He doesn't need our love to make it through another day. You know, he's not saying, I need some more love today, you know, to get through. That's not God, right? He he doesn't need anything. He's not needy. But we need to focus our love on him because it affects who we are. We looked at how um, what we worship or who we worship determines who we will become. And so worship's so important. We want to have a heart of worship. We want to come here on Sundays and worship together, you know, and, and, uh, and sing together and, and praise God. And that, that works uh, and develops our hearts as we worship him. And then we looked uh, last week at discipleship, that we don't just get saved to spend eternity with God in heaven, right? Otherwise, when we trust in Jesus, we'd be ushered into his presence. We'd leave this planet and it'd be done. But we're, we're left here for a reason, and that is because God intends for us to grow, to move from where we're at. We looked, um, you know, um, I think I shared last week with you that I got uh, uh, my first little baby granddaughter is born, so I'm a grandpa now, and, uh, and it's an exciting role. I'm excited about it, right? But my little granddaughter, who's perfect in every way, uh, she's a little angel, so <clears throat> she's growing, and we get picture updates from uh, her mom, and and, and so here, here's what's going on, though. She's developing and growing, right? And she's bo- that's supposed to happen. She's supposed to mature and develop over time. And so this needs to happen. We need to grow in our faith. Same thing is true. This week, we're looking at the third purpose, which is fellowship. It's fellowship. We realize that, um, that God intends for us to grow in the context of doing life with other people. That really growing together, developing together, is this important uh, component of our lives. And that we were meant not to live in isolation, not to be separated out from other believers, but really we're supposed to be connected intimately. We're supposed to grow in this thing called fellowship. And so we're going to look at that today. Um, How does fellowship happen? Where does it come from? And so we're looking in the New Testament and we see in the book of Acts that this church, this new church that Jesus started, explodes onto the scene. It has a great deal of force and thrust as it just explodes into uh, existence. You know, Jesus came to this earth as God in the flesh, right? God, he was in heaven, he existed before. He was with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that he was the creator. Jesus is the one who created the world, the universe, and human beings, and, and all life that exists. Everything that's been created was created by Jesus. And so Jesus, because of the will, in obedience to the will of the Father, came to earth, he humbled himself, he took on a body, he gave up some of his attributes, okay? Um, He gave up some of his, uh, the way in which he would um, appear as God, if you will. In other words, he took on a body so he's not all present anymore, right? And so he humbled himself. The Bible says he humbled himself um, and came to earth to, uh, to live among us. And so we got to see and touch and experience God. We had to see and listen to him talk. And uh, this powerful connection and revelation, Jesus revealed to us who God is. And so we learned and we were able to connect with him and grow through that and discover what God expects of us, how God wants us to live, what it takes to have a relationship with God. And so this is what happened because Jesus walked the earth. He lived a sinless life. He did not sin while he was here, though he uh, saw the effects of sin. He felt pain for those, uh, for his creation, for um, the, the humans that he was around that were suffering because of sin. He saw that and he hurt for them, right? 
though he didn't himself sin and suffer the effects of sin. So he had an experience that um, he was able to discover in a sense or grow in um, that connection with us as human beings, with his creation. And then we know that Jesus was put on trial, that he was accused of things that he didn't do, and he was put on trial um, and ultimately sentenced to death. And that the Romans, who were professional expert executioners, put him through a process of crucifixion in order to kill him. And it worked. He died on the cross. We know this because uh, one of the soldiers at the foot of the cross, as they were examining the bodies to ensure that they were dead, which is what the Romans did, they could not fail at execution, okay? And so they thrust a spear into his side, and water and blood mixture came out, um, indicating that his heart had failed, that he had died. This is physiological, it's physically true. This is proof that he died, okay? It was taken off the cross, put in a tomb. A stone was rolled over um, the door to the tomb. And a guard was placed there, a Roman guard, to guard the tomb because there was a rumor that Jesus was going to come back from the dead. And the last thing they wanted to see happen was the uh, disciples steal the body and then claim that Jesus came back from the dead. And so they guarded the tomb. And we know that three days later, the stone was rolled away. The guards were asleep, right? And Jesus was gone. And we know following his resurrection, we know that he really did rise from the dead. He appeared to people. He appeared to some women initially, then to his disciples. And lastly, uh, or as a part of his time after his resurrection, uh, Paul tells us in Corinthians that he appeared to over 500 people at once. People tried to claim that it was an illusion, that people thought they saw Jesus. Well, people don't, 500 people don't have the same illusion, right? They don't have the same, um, you know, see something in their heads. So we know that it was, it was real. Jesus was there. He came back. And then he went back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And, and so his followers, about 120 of them, were in an upper room, fearful, not sure what was going to happen. Jesus had gone back to heaven. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to give you power. So that you can do my work. You can serve. And so they're waiting in this upper room, fearful, not sure what's going to happen. And we know from the book of Acts that the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and fell on them and empowered them. They went out into the streets and began to preach the gospel. And thousands of people responded. And we have the early church just erupt, explode in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, there's a movement happening. Well, what did those people do in that early church? Acts chapter 2 tells us this. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to these practices. In other words, they said, we're going we're to make this happen. We're going to get there every day to this fellowship. We're going to listen to the apostles' teaching. We're going to eat together, and we're going to pray. And it was in this context, these practices, that the church began to grow It says this was the result. A deep sense of awe came over them all. The apostles performed many, many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They're going to church every day, right? They're meeting together every day. This is the kind of enthusiasm, excitement that was going on. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. 
God's mission for us as a church involves this idea of fellowship. There's a connection that we need to have with each other, with other believers, with other followers of Jesus. And there's a reason for that. As I said earlier, it's essential to our development, to our experience of walking with Jesus. There is not the idea in Scripture that we walk alone, but we walk together. And so the Bible teaches us about what this idea of fellowship looks like, what it, what it, um, what it is, and it uses some metaphors for, uh, to explain it to us so we can understand better. And the first one we want to look at today is, is centered around this truth that when you trust in Jesus, the Bible says you are adopted into God's family. You're adopted into God's family. So being a part of a family is the metaphor. It's the example of what it's like to be a Christian and to be a part of this fellowship. It's described as a family. Galatians 3, 26 through 28 says this, For, all, for you, are all God's, uh, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So we all become a part of God's family. We're all children as we trust in Jesus and what he's done for us. That his death on the cross paid for my sins, and it's through him that I can have access to God and salvation. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer, listen to this, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. You are all one in Christ. So this is the metaphor we're given. We're part of a family. We join a family when we put our trust in Jesus. Now, what does a family do? Why is that uh, used? Well, a family is a place where there's nurture and development, protection. We get what we need in order to grow. As I said, I got a new grandbaby, and and her mom and dad, uh, my son and daughter-in-law, are nurturing Shiloh. They're they're feeding her. They're taking care of her. They're protecting her so that she can grow and develop and and so that uh, she can grow to maturity, right? This is what happens in a family. This is what a family is designed to do. And so God says, listen, when you become a Christian, I'm going to put you in a family so that you can be nurtured, so that you can grow and develop. Um, If we don't become a part of a family, if we don't get that connection to other people where we can be nurtured and grow, then our growth will be stunted. It will be slowed down. And so it's essential that we recognize we're part of this body and that we jump in and become a part of it. And, And here's the good news. That whether you're 6 or 66, when you trust in Jesus, you start as a baby. And so a lot of times, uh, you know, we come to Christ later in life. We've developed some practices. We we get along on our own, and we kind of just continue in that way. But the truth is that when we come to Jesus, we need to be a part of a family to be nurtured and to grow and to develop. Um, this This is the process of development for us, and God wants us to experience it. Um, The next thing mentioned in this passage or in this uh, little section of verses is baptism. It says, listen, when you're baptized, you're baptized into Christ. It's like you're putting on new clothes. You know, baptism is this, uh, it's this outward expression of an internal transformation. So that baptism, if you've seen someone get baptized, you see this picture of being lowered down into the water, right? And that represents dying to my old self, being raised up out of the water, which reflects being raised to newness of life. And so we have this beautiful picture of being washed and the old me going away and dying and the new me coming out of the water. And so um, Jesus said, we're supposed to be baptized. He commanded us to get baptized. If you haven't been baptized yet, but you've trusted in Jesus, can I just take this moment to encourage you to move in that direction? I'd love to talk to you about it. We have a baptismal. We can roll it out here, fill it with warm water, 
and, uh, and make sure that you get baptized, right? So that, uh, and, and listen, we'll cheer with you, and, and it's, a great, it's a great thing. We celebrate being part of God's family. It's part of the process of us growing as Christians. It's an essential one, so don't, let's don't overlook it or discount it. It's really, really important. Um, and so uh, take that step if you need to. But we, we, um, we're part of God's family. We, we're baptized in Christ. And lastly, what this passage talks about is that we are one. We are one or we're unified. We're on the same level in terms of value. So when Paul says there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, it's not to say that we're all the, the same in identity, okay? He's not saying, oh, there's no men or women anymore. No, you know, we, we're having a little bit of struggle with that in our culture, right? You guys know, I can say that. We have some, we have some issues and try to figure that out. But here's the truth. That's not what's being said here. What, what Paul is saying is that there is a, there's a, a sameness in terms of value. You are not more valuable than I am or more important in this family. And I am not more important than you. We are equal in value. This was revolutionary in the time of Paul, you know, to say that uh, slave and free were the same. Uh, you could come into church and you had slaves and you had owners and all of a sudden they're on the same plane. I mean, that was radical. Even, even men and women to be considered equal. But inside the church was a place where your value was lifted up. It was identified as being, you're, you're important here. You matter to God. See, we're part of a family with a heavenly father who is not like our earthly fathers, okay? Earthly fathers try to do their best, but they're not perfect. Some of us were part of families where maybe we were not nurtured and, and, and grown and developed, but we actually maybe had some uh, abuse that we suffer at the hands of our earthly families. We, we all have different experiences. Earthly families can be uh, very, do, do the opposite of what they're intended to do. But the family of God is this place where we have a good father, a perfect father who loves each one of us because we are his creation. He made you. He cares about you. You are, not, you, are, you are as valuable to him as any other human being that walks the earth. You know? And so it's important for us to recognize that and express that inside of our church. That's what the body, uh, or that's what the family of God is. It's a place where, there is, um, where there's equality in terms of value. You matter. You matter in Christ. You're part of the family of God. You're one of his children. He loves you. And so that's what our good father does. He begins to love on us, speak into our lives, encourage us. You know, he does discipline us. He'll get after us, right? Sometimes we get a spanking. Sometimes we get corrected. But he's doing it out of love. He's trying to help us grow. He's trying to ensure that we move in the direction we're supposed to. The family of God is an amazing thing. And it's a metaphor that's used to explain what it's, part, what it's, what it's like to be a part of this fellowship. So our fellowship, our church, is to reflect the family, right? The family of God. The second metaphor that's used in the Bible, which we see as we continue through it, is this, it expresses it this way, that when you trust in Jesus, you're part of Jesus' body. You're part of Jesus' body. So there's a body metaphor that's used to describe what this fellowship looks like, what it is, how it functions. Romans 12, verses 3 through 5 says this, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. 
We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. So, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes these words, God's words, to us about what we're a part of when we trust in Jesus. We become a part of his body. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the head of this body. He is the one, he's the brains, he's the, he operates, he guides us, he directs us, he gives signals to each one of us. You think about the nervous system and, and all the functions of our bodies, Jesus is the, is the one directing us. We respond to his leadership and direction. He gives us an impulse, he gives us a direction, we do it. When I tell my hands to do, right, they, they, most of the time they do what I tell them to do, right? What, what my mind is instructing them to do. One of the warnings here, which Paul starts off with, is a warning against pride. Against a dishonest evaluation of who I am. Pride leads me to a dishonest evaluation of who I am. Paul didn't say in here to be um, false, falsely humble or practice false humility and say, oh, I'm really not, I'm really nothing. I really, I'm really not important, you know. Like that, that's not what's being talked about here. He says, be honest in your valuation, which means that you're fair, that you really can assess who you are and, and your evaluation is correct. But when pride comes into play, it skews our evaluation. This is something we gotta be careful of. There was a turtle that wanted to, uh, he was in Minnesota and he wanted to get down to Florida for the summer. And so, he, or for the winter, excuse me, it, it was getting cold in Minnesota. He knew the lakes were gonna freeze. It was, it was gonna be hard for him to make it through the winter. So he said, I wanna get to Florida. It's warm there. Uh, the, the, the sun is warm and that's where I wanna be. And so um, he goes, how am I gonna get there? I can't swim. You know, how am I gonna find a waterway the whole way? It's too slow and I can't walk. It'll take me two years to get there and I, I'll die on the way. So he's thinking, he's thinking, he comes up with a plan. Kind of a weird one, but he said, you know, I'll recruit a couple of geese, because geese can fly, they're kind of strong. So I'll get a couple of big geese, and I'll put a, a string, some rope between them, you know, tie it around their bodies, so stretch between them, and I'll clamp onto the middle of the rope uh, and, and with my strong jaws, and I'll hold on to it, and they'll fly me down to Florida. That's a great idea. So he got a couple of geese, got the rope, put it all together, um, clamp onto the rope, the geese take off, they're flying south, man, it's working working like a dream, and they're making it, and, uh, and everything's going great. Uh, he's enjoying this. He's like, I'm a genius, you know. Uh, man, what a great plan. And, and so he's on his way. He can already feel the warm sun. You know, he, he's already like, I'm there. And, and, uh, but, but something happened along the way. Somebody looked up and saw this, this uh, turtle moving through the air between these geese, and they said, man, that's incredible. Who came up with that idea? And the turtle could not resist. And so he, he said, I did. Okay, listen, you and I will probably do more damage to our own spiritual walk than anybody else will. We'll probably make more mistakes and do more, cause more problems, right? But out of pride, we can be tempted to blame someone else for those issues. And we can take credit for more than we should. Like pride gets us off. It skews our perspective. We're part of a body. We are all needed in this body. One of us is not more important than the other. It's important that we walk in that. Pride puffs us up. It makes us believe that our role is more important than somebody else's role. I'm more important than you are. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, the first will be last. The last will be first. It's an upside down kingdom. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must become the servant of all. 
We know that pride, ambition, climbing to the top, climbing over others, that's what happens in the world, but it's not how the church works. Inside of this place, we serve. That's how we show that, we, uh, that we're a leader. We serve. We help each other. So it's important we keep this perspective, right? That we don't let pride get in the way. It will mess things up. 1 Corinthians 12, it, it flushes out this uh, concept or this metaphor of the body. It's some interesting things that are said in this passage. This is how it starts off. Um, yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, well, does that not, uh, does that not make it any less a part of the body? And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, well, how would you smell anything? Seems kind of silly, but this happens. We look around at each other. We look at the different people and positions maybe. You've got a visible position. We look at that and we go, well, that's, that's, uh, that's really all that matters here. <laughs> That, that's a position that's important, you know. I'm not going to get there. So because I'm not an eye, I'm just not part of the body. And Paul goes, <laughs> ridiculous this is. Like, like the body isn't supposed to just be an eye, you know. That, that's not a body functioning. How are you going to get the work of God done if you just have an eye? And I'm going to tell you one of the challenges that we have in a larger church is to allow other people to do everything. To allow the, the professionals, you know, the paid people to do the job, whatever. And we just sort of step back and we, we, we go, ah, I'm not an eye, you know. It looks like that's all we need. Or a mouth. I'm not a mouth. We just need a mouth. Listen, um, that, that isn't how it works. Um, it, that's the opposite of what we need to walk in as a church. And so we got to work extra hard in some ways to ensure that each part of the body realizes their role. And that they step into it, and they're working it out, and they're helping. Because a larger church, I'm just going to tell you this, I believe that means we have a greater responsibility before God to accomplish more of his mission. It doesn't mean we get to settle for less and take it easy. We have to step in and be willing to engage more and to take on more so that together we can accomplish the mission that God has for us. I believe that's how it works. That's my conviction. That Because I know this is the principle. God has put this body together. Um, the, the passage goes on to say, but our bodies have many parts. Listen to this. And God has put each part just where he wants it. See, our bodies are a miracle, right? How they work, how they function. It's amazing. And the body of Christ is the same way. And can I just say for a minute, from my heart, directly into your ears, that you are necessary here. You're, you're important here. You belong here. Like, there, there's something for you to do here. Because God puts this body together. We don't do it. There's, there's, no, there's no person that put this body together. It's God that's done it. And he puts each part in its place. So part of our job is to discover, <laughs> what part am I? You know, what role am I supposed to play? Where am I supposed to invest? We have a core class called Shape, Discovering Your Shape. And it's all about helping you discover who you are, how God's designed you, where you're supposed to fit in. But it's important, it's a passion of mine to make sure that each part of the body is doing uh, their function, that they understand who they are and they're, they're investing and they're finding a place. We, we, we discover fulfillment, right? We discover fulfillment in our walk with Jesus when we discover where we fit in. 
Without that, uh, we just sort of feel lost and we sort of uh, wander around and, and there's, not a, there's not a focus to our growth and our development. So, um, so please allow me to speak into your life that way. Like God has a, a place for you here. And so each part has its spot. God has put, it, put this all together. And uh, this passage goes on to say, in fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are, um, are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all parts are glad. Here's the wrap-up. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Now, we recognize that in a larger church, we can have a difficult time connecting into a fellowship and feeling a part of something. So that's hard. So one of the things that this, the leadership of this church determined before I got here, but I'm in agreement with and passionate about, is that we have um, a, uh, an effort to connect each other called life groups. And that's why we go, listen, we're larger. We sit in rows on Sundays. We come and worship together and learn together. But we need to circle up, okay? We need to circle up for relationships and for fellowship. And so we have those uh, in place, and we're constantly trying to get more of those life groups. So we can do life together. We can fellowship together, encourage each other. It's an important component of our walk with Jesus. I want to encourage you and press you to find a place to fit in in a life group. Um, I'm constantly trying to create more. Right? I'm trying to develop that so there's more opportunities, but, uh, but there's a place for you. And, and if there's not, we need, to, we need to make a place because we all need to be connecting with others. In the body of Christ, every member is a minister in Christ's body. Every member has a different function. Every, member, uh, every member's ministry is important. Every member belongs to the others. There's a, a connection that we have to each other. It's important, it's vital, it's essential, and it's real. Jesus is leading us. He's put us together. He wants us to accomplish his mission. The last piece I want to hit on today is the piece that kind of makes this all work. Because we can be a part of the family of God. Okay, I get that, Pastor. I'm part of the family of God. I, I kind of understand that. And then we're part of Christ's body. Okay, I kind of understand how that works. The body has work to do. It's got to function. You know, it gets through the day. Uh, work, is, work gets done and all that. And so I kind of understand that. But here, here's a key component to get everything to work the way it's supposed to. For the family of God, the body of Christ, those metaphors, for the church to actually engage and accomplish and be who God wants us to be, here's the key component. And this is talked about in the New Testament all over the place. It's emphasized. And this is it. This is it. That unity allows us to work together. Unity is what's, uh, what allows this diversity a large group of people with different backgrounds, different gifts, different interests, all of that diversity, to come into this place and be part of the same thing, to be headed the same direction. It's unity that allows that to happen. It allows us to work together. Ephesians 4, 2 through 6 says this, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Now, fortunately for you, you've got a perfect pastor. You don't need to worry about, you know, faults in him. But, 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 but the person next to you, you know, the person next to you has some faults probably. And so you got to give some allowances for that. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit 
That's the Holy Spirit, capital S. The Holy Spirit is what unites us. It's what connects me to you. It's that internal component, listening to God, being taught by God. That is the piece that connects us. We're connected to the same Spirit. Um, And so um, we bind ourselves together with peace. Peace needs to guide our interactions. We need to fight for peace, work for peace. It's difficult for there is one body, listen to this, one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. What's the key word there? Well, all is one of them, but one, right? The word one just got mentioned 20 times in, this little, in these, these verses. It's incredible. One, 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 one. Um, listen to this, Jesus' prayer, John 17. Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying for his followers. He's praying for us. This is what he says regarding this unity. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. Jesus literally thought of us, and he's praying for us. He says this, I pray that they will all be one. And how are we to be one? He says, just as you, talking to the Father, you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, And may they be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. This oneness is a mystery. It's not easy. It's difficult. Look at our families. We struggle with oneness. Husband and wife are supposed to be one. We struggle with that. There's things that pull us apart, right? There's always issues like that. And so this is why it's talked about so much is because it takes effort. It takes focus. It's something we've got to give energy to. But Jesus, and I want to encourage you with this, Jesus prayed that we would be one. We have the prayers of the Son of God who sits at the right hand of the Father, who oversees all the universe with power and authority. He's prayed for us that we would accomplish this. We'd be able to achieve it. And so there's hope for us that we struggle at it. There's hope. There's a chance. There's actually the probability that we will realize this unity. Without unity, guys, the church is like a hobbled horse. It's like a hobbled horse. You know, you hobble a horse, tie their legs together, put, put the hobbles on them, and then they can't get away. They can't wander. They can't run. And we're kind of like that. The church is this amazing organism. It's a living, breathing thing. It's a body. It's to accomplish amazing things in the world. And yet, we're hobbled. We can't run without unity. It slows us down. Stops our effectiveness, right? Tonto and the Lone Ranger, <clears throat> do you guys know who they are? You guys know Tonto and Lone Ranger? Please tell me. Okay. So there's hope. Uh, The young people know Tonto and Lone Ranger. So here's the deal. Tonto and Lone Ranger are riding through, uh, right out in the Wild West, and they're on an adventure, and they ride through a canyon. And all of a sudden, there are uh, Native American Indian warriors uh, lining the canyon, yelling and screaming, and they've got their... their, um, machetes or whatever they got, and they're like uh, ready to come down and attack, right? And so they're in a tight spot, Tonto and the Lone Ranger, and the Lone Ranger looks to Tonto, the right-hand man, he said, Tonto, what are, you, what are we going to do? And Tonto says, what do you mean we, white man? <laughs> okay, listen, when things get tough, when we're in a tight spot, that's when we need each other. That's not when we say, oh, man, well, I'll be praying for you. I hope that goes well, you know. <laughs> Woo, that was a dumb move. <laughs> I mean, oh, come on, man. That's when we got we to gotta pull together. We got to be there for each other. We got to say, listen, I'm in this struggle with you. Yeah, you made a dumb decision and you got in a tough spot. Now's not when I abandon you and say, mm, 
you know, now's when I pull in. Like we, 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 we band together. We work together. We're there for each other. The reason that unity matters so much is that it's required, check this, it's required for effectiveness. It's required for us to accomplish anything. If our body is not unified, if, if my body's not working in sync, then I'm not going to get any work done. If my hand is not working with my feet, if I'm, it doesn't matter what I'm trying to do, I'm, I'm just going to flounder. I'm going to struggle, and I'm not going to get the job done. And God does have work for us to do. The devil tries to sow seeds of confusion and conflict. This is the devil's work. Seeds of confusion and conflict. He came to Eve and said, ah, did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Confusion, right? And that created conflict. And, and it ultimately resulted in conflict between God and Adam and Eve. It broke and severed their, and damaged their relationship. That's what the enemy tries to do. When we, when we sense conflict and confusion, okay, when there's a cloud, things don't make sense. Ah, I don't know. I can't make sense of this. That's when we recognize that the enemy's at work. And what we do to that is we just stand and fight it. We stand with our brothers and sisters. We stand against them. We go, look, we're not going to be influenced by this. We're not going to go and, and, and allow the enemy to confuse us when, and, to, and to cause conflict. He, when he can bring conflict and confusion, then the enemy knows he can uh, destroy our ability to accomplish the work of God. And unfortunately, there's too many churches that get embroiled in conflict, right, and confusion, and they don't accomplish the mission. And so we are praying and trusting God, and we're going to work hard and diligently, as this church has over the decades of existence, to fight that, to work together. Listen, the New Testament has many verses on unity. I'd encourage you to Google those, look them up, look at the, at the, the importance of unity. It's so important. It's key. It's a key teaching in the church being who we're called to be. Let me give you some keys to unity in the church. This is how we achieve this, and it is difficult. Here's, here's one. Um, we're, we're given instructions of what to do when somebody wrongs you. What do you do when somebody wrongs you? Well, Matthew 18 has instructions for how to handle it. Listen, do you realize that we're a church made up of sinners? And sinners are going to sin against each other, right? It's going to happen. We're going to do something that hurts another person. It's almost inevitable in a sense. Um, I'd like to think that in my family, my kids never hurt each other, you know? Always harmony. They always got along. They always did what was best for each other. Okay, listen, then there's reality, which is that's not what happened. And so uh, sometimes we had forced unity, right? Sometimes we hugged it out. We didn't hug it out. You know, sometimes I had to push to get, uh, to get them to forgive and to love each other. Now, ultimately, they did. They, they would, I, I think they would die for each other at this point in their lives. Like, there's a lot of loyalty there. But there were days there were seasons that were difficult. Listen, we got to know how to handle it when somebody wrongs us. You're going to get wronged. And the answer to being wronged is not to pretend as though it didn't happen. Say, oh, no, it's, it's fine. I forgave them. I'm not, it's okay. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to press in. Some of us are conflict averse. We don't want to engage a conflict. We don't certainly want to start one. And going and talking to somebody, how about they've wronged us? Last thing in the world we're going to do. Listen, if you avoid conflict, do not deal with the wrong. You are contributing to disunity. You're actually, as, it's as bad as if you're running around starting fights with everybody for no reason. So we're called to deal with it. Uh, the scripture teaches us to do that. 
But there's a process. It involves going one-on-one and then involves taking somebody with you and then involves getting the leadership of the church involved. And it's important, guys. We gotta, we gotta fight for this. It means being uncomfortable sometimes. Pressing into um, the instructions that Jesus gave us. This is the church. It's his body. And so we wanna follow his direction. The second thing is, there's a command that we have in Luke 17 as to how we're to handle it when we confront somebody about their wrong, what they've done to us, and they actually repent. In Luke 17, this is what Jesus said. These are Jesus' words. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then, if there is repentance, forgive. And listen to this. If that person wrongs you seven times a day, and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. Um, there's times that Jesus gives us some direction and instruction, and it's really hard to swallow. (laughs) It's hard to imagine how that is anywhere near the real world. Uh, Jesus, I get that you want us to forgive, okay? And if somebody does the same thing to me twice, man, I'll stretch and forgive them. Like, I could probably do that. But seven times a day, the same thing? And I'm supposed to forgive them every time? That just sounds like crazy talk. That just sounds not even in the realm of possibility. Well, let me give you a little hint. It's not possible in our human flesh, right? With our sinful selves and human nature leading the way. We can't do this. This is the development and it's a result of the process of being formed by God. To have the maturity level in us where we're walking with Jesus and we're trusting in him and he has shaped us and formed us and changed us so that when a person is incredibly difficult, we have the patience and the capacity to forgive them. It's, it's not an easy thing and it's not something you're going to be able to do tomorrow. And I mean, I've been walking with Jesus a long time. I, I honestly don't know that I could do this. This is still a bar that I, I'm, I'm trying to get to. <laughs> I'm trying to, God, change me, teach me. But so often when we're confronted with the commands of Jesus, we can be tempted to say, I can't. That's not possible. And we come up with excuses, right? I can't, I can't, I can't. It's like when I'm talking to a young couple, they're living together, they want to get married, and I say, listen, you guys need to separate, live separately. And all of a sudden I hear all the reasons I can't, I can't, I can't, can't afford to, can't work out, you don't understand. All these reasons it can't work. And the reality is, don't want to make it work, right? I mean, if we're just honest, don't want to make it work. So the truth is that when I come to Jesus and I'm sitting under his authority and he gives me a command, forgive somebody. Well, if I can't do it, I shouldn't say I can't, God, I can't. But I say, how? God, teach me how to do this. I want to grow to be able to do this. Help me develop. Show me the way. I don't, I don't understand how this is possible. And it's fair. This seems absolutely outside of reality. All I know is this. If Jesus commands us to do it, then in him it's possible for us to do. We can grow in our ability to walk with others in harmony. Second, a next key to unity in the church, don't sin in your anger, Ephesians 4. You must love each other, John 13. Speak in an uplifting way to each other, Ephesians 4. Look to serve each other, not just yourself, Ephesians, or Philippians 2. Don't repay evil with evil, Romans 12. Be patient with each other, Colossians 3. Resist bitterness, Hebrews 12. Agape love, love each other with unconditional love, a love that comes from God that's found in 1 Corinthians 13. Be quick to listen 
and slow to speak. That's James 1. These are keys to unity. How do we achieve it? Well, we, we've got to work at these things. We've got to, we've got to ask God to form, uh, form us and mature us and grow us so that we can live these out. Um, but it takes, it takes an effort. It takes a willingness not to say, I can't, but to say, how am I going to? God, I, I'm going to fight to figure this out. True unity comes when we all stay focused on Jesus. When, I get, when we get our eyes on him instead of on ourselves and each other. A.W. Tozer, in The Pursuit of God, wrote this. He said, Have it, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are, one, they are in one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard, which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other, then they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. In other words, working to be in closer fellowship with each other is not how we achieve harmony and unity. We achieve it by getting our focus on Jesus, listening to his instructions, wanting to follow him. Listen, God invites us into his family, and we need to grow as a family. We need to love each other, nurture each other, encourage each other. Listen to God the Father, who is our, uh, is our heavenly Father, and is working to shape all of us and to build us up together. We're part of the body of Christ. There's work for us to do. There's, there's um, mission for us to accomplish. We need to function together, finding our spot, finding who we are, how we're gifted, how we're wired, so we fit in, and then working together to accomplish the great mission God's called us to do. We don't want to hobble ourselves with disunity. We want to be unified, so we got to fight for that. we got to work for it. we got to say, no, I'm not going to settle for anything less than when I'm one with my brothers and sisters in Christ. As hard as it is to get there, I'm not going to settle for anything less because that's what Jesus is calling us to do. And when we do that, guys, we become a church that can achieve and accomplish and live out the mission God's called us to. We can be the people God wants us to be. Loving each other the way God wants us to love each other. Living together. And it's an amazing, amazing miracle on this earth. The church of Jesus is the most powerful entity, organism that, there, that exists. And God is leading us. And he's leading us to become uh, the example, the, to make the impact, right, in this region that he has for us. And my prayer and my belief is that we're, we're, we're going that direction. We're moving that direction together. And so, um, so let's stay focused in on him. God, thank you so much for the way you love us, you care for us, you call us to be a part of this fellowship. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to connect with other followers of you. I pray that you would help us to grow this year in our commitment to fellowship, to being connected to each other, to building relationships with each other, to loving each other, to caring for each other, lifting each other up, believing in each other. God, help us to keep our eyes on you so that we can be the church that you've called us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.